Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. With reports of stamp duty abolition being greatly exaggerated, what key Australian stamp duty developments have occurred this year and what critical stamp duty measures to come into effect next year should tax managers understand now and be prepared for? Hello, my name is Primrose Moskowski. I'm a director in KPMG's deals and international tax team. I specialise in stamp duty and land tax, and I'm looking forward to discussing these questions with you. With me today is Sarah Shaw, a partner in KPMG's deals and international tax team, who also specialises in Australian stamp duty and land tax. Hello to you, Sarah. Thank you for the introduction, Primrose. The subject of the abolition of stamp duty has been a hot topic for more than 20 years, Sarah. You'll recall the proposal was to pair the introduction of the GST with the introduction of measures to abolish and phase out various indirect taxes, including different heads of stamp duty. So indeed, whilst various duties have been abolished, in their place, different and expanded transactions attracting stamp duty, including impositions of surcharge duty and land tax foreign buyers and owners, have been introduced. This means that stamp duty and land tax planning should be on the forefront of a tax manager's mind. So, Sarah, can you give us an overview of some of the key stamp duty developments that have occurred this year and what can be expected next year? Yes, thanks Primrose. And yes, while there have been many developments, I'd like to focus on one development in New South Wales and two evolving areas in Victoria. For New South Wales, This is the introduction of a new category of dutable transaction called a change in beneficial ownership. And for Victoria, it is the existing and evolving economic entitlement provisions and the soon to be introduced windfall gains tax. Please guide us through these topics, starting with New South Wales change in beneficial ownership provisions. Well, the new change in beneficial ownership provisions have been effective since 19 May 2022 but the administration and reach of these provisions continues to evolve. The provisions under the New South Wales Duties Act, prior to the amendments, impose duty on specified dutable transactions involving dutable property. For example, a sale or a transfer or a declaration of trust or a vesting under statute or court order relating to dutable property, including land. The expanded regime, which is largely modelled on similar provisions in Victoria, makes any other transaction that affects a change in beneficial ownership dutiable. So what are the key ramifications for tax managers of these change in beneficial ownership provisions? Yes, these provisions affect the dutiability of leases, including where improvements to the property by the lessee are considered consideration for the grant of the lease, as well as grants of options to purchase land. So starting with leases, Prior to the introduction of the change in beneficial ownership provisions, where a premium was paid or payable for the grant of the lease, this would be a dutable transaction. 
The expanded provisions now also make the grant of a lease for non-monetary consideration dutiable. A recently released Commissioner's Practice Note, that's CPN 027, sets out the Commissioner's interpretation of the expanded provisions. So, for example, the CPN provides that the grant of a lease, which includes an agreement for lease, for consideration other than rent will be dutiable. This means that the focus on the distinction between, on the one hand, the consideration for the grant of the lease, and on the other hand, the consideration for the right to use the land, i.e. the rent, is critical to ensure that all benefits moving from the lessee to the lessor are clearly characterised and the duty position carefully managed. Does CPN 027 provide examples of what Revenue New South Wales considers is a grant of a lease for monetary consideration, Sarah? Yes, and perhaps to start with the opposite first. The CPN indicates that outgoings, such as rates and charges and taxes, are not treated as consideration for the grant of a lease. In contrast, a grant of a lease, whether lessee pays or agrees to pay, the lessor's legal fees, which are non-refundable and are greater than $1,000, will be dutiable. This means that most commercial leases in New South Wales, which contain such a clause, will need to be stamped with duty by reference to the sum of the legal fees paid by the lessee. This is where careful drafting can mitigate this duty risk. That example sounds a bit harsh. What about the question of evidence of value? For example, if there is a grant of a lease for a premium, is a valuation required for the purposes of the New South Wales duty assessment? If the lease is granted for monetary consideration, i.e. a premium alone, a valuation report is not required. What if there is non-monetary consideration for the grant of a lease? What is Revenue New South Wales's approach as reflected in CPN 027? Yes, this is a huge change for duty purposes. A lease may be dutable on its grant where the lessee is under an obligation to undertake improvements and, under the terms of the lease, the improvements are to become the property of the lessor at the end of the lease. In these circumstances, duty will be calculated on entry into the lease or agreement for lease on the value of the improvements to the lessor when the lease term concludes. This will significantly impact lease transactions in a PPP, that's a public-private partnership context, where the lease is for a term of less than 50 years. Does the practice note provide any guidance on how the value of improvements is determined for the purposes of determining the quantum of the non-monetary consideration? Yes, the CPN indicates that evidence of the value of the improvements must be provided by the lessee at the time of stamping of the lease or agreement for lease, which is generally prior to construction and will generally require a degree of estimation. However, in lieu of evidence of value, Revenue New South Wales will accept evidence of the cost of improvements and use the following method to calculate the proportion of the value attributable to the improvements as the dutable value for the grant of the lease. The dutable value of the improvements will be the cost of the construction activities, including GST. So I'll just run through examples based on the term of the lease, and this excludes all option periods. If the lease is 10 years or less, it'll be 100% of the cost of the improvements. If the lease is between 10 but less than 20 years, 
it'll be 75% of the cost of the improvements. If the lease is between 20 but less than 30 years, it's 50% of the cost of the improvements. If the lease is between 30 but less than 40 years, it's then 25% of the cost of the improvements. And then when the lease is more than 50 years, it'll be nil, so zero cost of improvements. Separately, in the case of periodic leases or leases for a term that cannot be ascertained when the lease is made, it will be 100% of the cost of the improvements. So it seems that these provisions can potentially significantly impact PPP transactions. In a typical PPP, if you like, the state grants a lease to the project entity on the basis that the project entity will design, construct, maintain and operate the project. What would happen to the project entity in this case? Well, duty will be calculated on entry into the lease or agreement for lease on the value of the improvements to the lessor when the lease term concludes. Importantly, if the lease is for more than 50 years, no duty should be payable. But if the lease is for less than 50 years, the previously discussed calculation method will apply to determine the dutable value of the lease. Are there any relevant provisions that businesses should be aware of at the end of the lease in contrast to the grant of the lease? Yes, a lease may be dutable on its expiry or extinguishment, i.e. when the lease term ends, where the lessee has undertaken improvements and surrenders the rights, invaluable fixtures and or the fit-out to the lessor. Duty will be calculated on the value of the fixtures and fit-out which the lessor acquires. An exception to this is where it is a surrender for no consideration of a tenant's interest in fixtures that are fit out for commercial premises, as this is an excluded transaction. The CPN confirms that payments moving from a lessee to a lessor on termination of a lease, for example, make good payments or compensation for lost rent, are not dutiable. That is all very interesting, Sarah. And no doubt it adds to the range of issues we need to consider when advising on the entry into and exit from PPP transactions, in New South Wales anyway. If I may move now to a transaction of a different nature, Sarah, what about the grant of an option to purchase New South Wales land? Is this caught under the New South Wales change in beneficial ownership provisions? Yes, uh, options to purchase land in New South Wales are now dutiable. But please note that options other than to purchase land, for example, an option to be granted a lease, is not dutiable. These new provisions are complex, including no crediting or refunding of the duty paid in respect to the grant of the option. So for this and for various other reasons, businesses should consider whether it remains appropriate to, um, in a particular case, to adopt a put and call option structure rather than for a contract for sale of land subject to any required conditions precedent. The New South Wales change in beneficial ownership provisions do seem quite far-reaching and we could probably spend a lot more time on this topic. However, shall we now move to the second topic, Sarah, that we're covering today, the Victorian Economic Entitlement Provisions? Great, let's do that. Thanks, Primrose. Thanks, Sarah. Perhaps we should start by recapping on what the Economic Entitlement Provisions are about. Yes, that's a good idea. So, broadly, the Economic Entitlement Provisions will apply in Victoria, where there is an arrangement in relation to land with an unencumbered value that exceeds $1 million, under which a person has an entitlement 
to participate in the income, rents or profits derived from the land, or to participate in the capital growth of the land, or to participate in the proceeds of sale of the land, or to receive any amount determined by reference to any of the above matters. And the latest development is a new draft ruling, I understand? Yes, that's right. Uh, the State Revenue Office of Victoria, the SRO, recently released a draft ruling on the operation of the economic entitlement provisions. The draft ruling formalises the guidance previously published on the SRO website in relation to arrangements potentially dutiable under these provisions. It's noted that much of what was previously published on the SRO website is contained in the draft ruling. However, the ruling does include some further examples. So the draft ruling highlights the intention of the provisions is to impose duty on arrangements where a person, without acquiring an ownership interest in the land, effectively obtains rights and benefits relating to the land that are economically equivalent to ownership interests. Labelling an amount as a fee or interest or something else will not avoid the economic entitlement provisions if they otherwise apply. The draft ruling states that fees may be tied to the proceeds associated with land and or its development, but not amount to an economic entitlement. This is the case where a third party service provider receives genuine industry fees for service. And the examples in the draft ruling given include? Yes, there's quite a few. Uh, such non-dutable examples for specific service providers include, firstly, for real estate agents, whose fees are based on the proceeds of sale of land, or architects whose fees can include a percentage of building costs, or project managers whose fees can include a percentage of project value, and payment of the fees cannot be contingent on or calculated by reference to the performance of the project or the development, and also for lenders and financiers who receive interest for providing finance to a development the interest or the fee cannot be tied to the performance of the development. An example of such an arrangement is a standard loan facility with interest at market rates. So what do you see as some of the limitations of the draft ruling, Sarah? Well, whilst the examples provided have been included to avoid confusion, more clarity is still required as the ruling does not articulate the principles which are being applied by the commissioner in the examples. In some examples, the conclusion is that the fee is not an economic entitlement. However, it is not clear whether this is because those examples actually fall outside the definition of an economic entitlement in the first place. For example, an architect who charges fees on a percentage of building costs does not actually acquire any entitlement to participate in the income, rent or profits derived from the land. Similarly, financiers who are entitled to interest calculated on the loan advanced do not have an entitlement to participate in the income, rent or profits derived from the land. In these circumstances, it is irrelevant whether the fees are genuine and within industry parameters. In addition, the draft ruling provides no guidance as to what genuine fees or whether a fee or rate is within industry parameters. So it sounds like the draft ruling hasn't really further assisted taxpayers in understanding the very broad economic entitlement provisions. Shall we now move to the last topic, Sarah? The Victorian windfall gains tax? Great, let's do that. Thanks, Primrose. Put simply, the windfall gains tax is a tax on the value of gains made by a landowner as a result of certain rezoning decisions by the government. 
There is a view that this is a controversial tax and even a view that it is quite an extraordinary tax in the sense that a taxpayer becomes liable for windfall gains tax without any dutiable transaction having taken place. And on top of that, the liability to the tax arises as a result of circumstances and decisions beyond a taxpayer's control. So, Sarah, let us know your thoughts as you take us through some of the nuts and bolts of the windfall gains tax. Thanks, Primrose. And as you have alluded to, the windfall gains tax will only be triggered if a relevant rezoning takes effect on or after 1 July 2023. It is imposed at a rate of up to 50% on the taxable value uplift that results from the windfall gains tax event. Where the taxable value uplift is is $100,000, it will not be taxed. But where it is above $100,000 but below $500,000, a tax equal to 62.5% of the taxable value uplift above $100,000 will be imposed. And where the taxable value uplift is $500,000 or more, a tax equal to 50% of the taxable value uplift will be imposed. The taxable value uplift of the relevant land is defined as the value uplift less any deductions prescribed by regulations. Such regulations are not yet available. But broadly, the value uplift will be equal to the increase in the capital improved value, the CIV, of the land as a result of the windfall gains tax event. The CIV is the value of General Victoria's estimate of the unencumbered market value of the land, including improvements. The post-rezoning CIV will be based on a supplementary valuation prepared by or on behalf of the value of General Victoria by reference to the same date as the pre-rezoning CIV valuation date, but assuming the new zoning applied to the land at that time. Given the subjectivity inherent in a hypothetical valuation exercise, we expect to see a rise in valuation disputes following the introduction of the windfall gains tax. Taxpayers have objection rights in this regard. So who pays windfall gains tax? Yes, it's the owner of the land at the time of the windfall gains tax event. Um, That person will generally be the person liable to pay the tax. When does windfall gains tax have to be paid? Are there opportunities for deferral? Who administers the tax? Yes, the Commissioner of State Revenue will issue a notice of assessment of the windfall gains tax liability to the landowner specifying the due date for payment, which is typically 60 days from the date of assessment. However, landowners will have the ability to defer payment until a later date, up to 30 years later but that interest will accrue daily on the deferral at a rate of approximately 1.52%. The windfall gains tax liability may be deferred until the first of specified events, at which point the deferred liability and all accrued interest must be paid to the commissioner within 30 days. Such specified events include the next dutable transaction, for example, the land is sold, or the next relevant acquisition, for example, 50% or more of the shares in the land-owning company are sold. And there are certain specified events which will not cause a windfall gains tax deferral arrangement to come to an end. And this includes a subdivision of that land. So if I'm a taxpayer who's been assessed a windfall gains tax and I choose not to pay it, 
leaving aside the opportunity for deferral, what are the consequences? Yes, the failure to pay the windfall gains tax liability, as well as uh, interest in the case of a deferred liability, will constitute a tax default. This may give rise to additional interest and penalty tax being imposed by the Commissioner. Further, unpaid windfall gains tax liability, including the accrued interest, is a first charge on the land and will have priority over all other encumbrances on the land. This mechanism is similar to that in other state taxes contexts, for example, unpaid land tax. Accordingly, the commercial impact of the statutory charge on the landowner's borrowing capacity, finance arrangements and debt covenants will need to be monitored. Are there any exemptions and exclusions from windfall gains tax, Sarah? Yes, there's a number of exemptions or exclusions, and these can include uh, certain residential land exemptions or land rezoned to or from the urban growth zone within the growth areas infrastructure contribution area, or where the land is charitable and university land, but also land that's rezoned to public land zones. So if I can summarise the impact in a couple of sentences, Sarah, what this all means is that taxpayers who hold land in Victoria will be subject to windfall gains tax if their land is rezoned and will now need to allow for this tax. And if I'm a purchaser of Victorian land, I may need to factor windfall gains tax and any accrued interest into the purchase price if I find the vendor has a deferred windfall gains tax liability. Yes, I'm afraid so. But purchasers should also consider the impacts of assuming such costs into the purchase price. This is because it may be added to the consideration for the acquisition of the land and transfer duty calculated on the increased consideration. Sarah, thank you so much for your coverage of these key stamp duty developments and for your insightful comments. That was our guest, Sarah Shaw, a partner in KPMG's deals and international tax team who specialises in Australian stamp duty and land tax. My name is Primrose Moskowski, Director in KPMG's Deals and International Tax Team. Register for KPMG Tax Now to find out more, as well as receive regular updates from across the tax industry. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash tax now or follow our LinkedIn page KPMG Tax Now Insights for regular updates. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.